0: You're listening to ReachMD. The following episode was produced in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation and the American Gastroenterological Association. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Bernholz. Coming to you from the 3rd Annual Crohn's and Colitis Congress in Austin, Texas, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Joining me to talk about some key takeaways from a session presented at the Congress titled IBD Beyond the Gut is Dr. James Lewis. Director of Clinical Research and Associate Director of the Inflammatory Bowel Diseases Program at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Lewis, welcome to you. Well, thank you for having me join you today. It's great to have you here. So to start, I'd love to just get a little clarification around um, what Beyond the Gut meant in the context of this session. It seemed like you had a number of presenters, you yourself or one of the organizers, um, and a number of subjects were, were touched upon. But what were some of the key takeaways from your vantage point? The title, Beyond the Gut, really referenced the fact that IBD is not
1: just an intestinal disease. Patients with IBD suffer from all sorts of extraintestinal manifestations, ranging from those which we can see to those which patients experience, psychological um, experiences, etc. And so the, the real goal of the program was to touch on this multidisciplinary
0: approach that is needed to care for patients uh, in a more holistic fashion. And you yourself, in your practice, you have um, touch points in a number of facets within that holistic uh, care paradigm. One of them, as I uh, understand, is nutritional counseling, um, which is an area that perennially gets a ton of uh, attention, but little is actually, I think, known. The evidence is sort of back and forth. Some evidence is becoming increasingly high quality. Some is not so high quality. <laughs> uh, and there's a lot of gaps in understanding about where nutrition plays a role in um, in good paradigms of care for IBD. Can you walk us through just where you sit with nutrition um, in terms of um, quality of evidence, the amount of research that, that is out there to weigh in, on best practices and how you uh, like to counsel patients or even initiate conversations about nutrition. Well, I think nutrition is relevant to every patient
1: because uh, if nothing else, when we see patients, it's important to just assess, are they malnourished? And you, what I often say to trainees and uh, colleagues, you know, we really shouldn't forget our basics. We, we want to jump to nutritionist therapy but we shouldn't forget the basics of just making sure that patients aren't malnourished, and if they are, decide whether this is something that we can handle ourselves, or do we need help of a specialist, meaning a registered dietitian or nutritionist. Um, And then you start moving into the question of can you use nutrition as therapy, uh, either to treat active disease or as a maintenance therapy. And here, I think, is where you're, Reference to uh, experience over the course of the last decade of, of a number of more high-quality studies starting to be done and come to the forefront to really try and answer this question. Research in nutrition is incredibly difficult. Uh, and if you, if you try and compare it to doing, for example, a study of a medication there are so many variables, additional variables that you have to deal with that adds to this challenge. And I'll just give you one quick example. Uh, if you're studying a medication, the, the biggest issue you're trying to study is did the person actually, did they take the medication? Um, that's the confounder that can sort of ruin your, your study of the medication other than, you know, were the two groups similar and in, you know, in a large enough trial? That's usually not a problem. If you're studying diet, there's all sorts of other issues about where do people get their food, how did they prepare their food, mm-hmm. is the food uh, the same quality, etc. And, and an example I like to give is, you know, fine, you you told people they should eat potatoes, but is the potato from Idaho the same as the potato from Ireland, <laughs> and or is you know is the white potato the same as the red potato and if you baked it versus boiling it versus frying it, all of these things play in that make you know, studies of nutrition just so much more difficult to execute than
0: the standard drug trial. Right, and difficult to double-blind a nutritional yeah. research study. Anything short of, I'm guessing, exclusive internal nutrition um, would be really hard to, to fool the patient and say, am I taking this or am I taking that? Yeah, essentially uh, the moment they consume their first uh, meal, They know what
1: diet they're on.
0: (laughs) Not so blinded anymore. Yeah. Well, why don't we shift from that? I want to keep asking you questions on on the role of nutrition in this case. You know, can it ultimately uh, replace certain forms of medical therapy? Some uh, experts we've spoken to have said, you know, it's time for certain nutritional therapies to become more reflexive than, um, for instance, in a rescue situation of putting somebody on prednisolone, there might be another alternative, like an exclusive internal uh, um, uh, nutrition um, you know, bolus. Where are your thoughts on that? One of the examples that came up in our
1: session today uh, is, for example, the role of nutrition in the preoperative patient. We, we know that going to surgery with significant malnutrition puts you at much higher risk of complications, particularly infectious complications and wound healing complications. And that's a perfect example of a scenario where delaying the surgery and using nutrition as a therapy, not so much that you're healing their IBD, but you're correcting that profound nutritional deficiency is allowing them to have better surgical outcomes. Sometimes that's going to be parenteral nutrition, sometimes that's going to be enteral nutrition. Um, A a really nice example that one can think about is the patient uh, who's on high dose of steroids, which is the the other factor that we can control that also dramatically increases the risk of surgical complications. And you can think about using, for example, exclusive enteral nutrition as a mode over the course of several weeks for the elective surgery patients to wean down their steroids. And I typically say if you can just get them down to, say, 20 milligrams a day of prednisone, you have probably dramatically reduced that risk of surgical complications. If you can get them even lower than that, that's great.
0: But, you know, if you can postpone that surgery for four weeks or so, uh, that can be really helpful. So it's not simply just an either-or situation. It's, it's a complementary form of of treatment through which you can get a good synergistic result if you actually pair good nutritional therapy alongside uh, the medications and other preoperative-related things that you're doing.
1: Yeah, there's actually some, some interesting data from, uh, from the Far East where they had looked at the idea of combining dietary therapy, particularly exclusive endonutrition, with anti-TNF therapy, and at least in these observational studies, suggesting that the anti-TNF therapy was more effective when coupled with exclusive nutrition than when given with a regular diet, which is not hard to imagine if you believe that exclusive nutrition is effective, and we have a lot of evidence to believe that that's true, but it's really a nice example of using it as sort of
0: an ancillary therapy there. Excellent. Why don't I uh, change, because we are talking beyond the gut. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up some of the other subjects that came up in, in your session. Psychosocial needs, you brought them up uh, early on. A lot of factors that go into that. Um, but improving care coordination seems to be one of the biggest issues when it comes to when to integrate um, psychosocial counseling, um, When, uh, who is ultimately responsible um, as an IBDologist versus um, bringing in specialists, uh, psychologists and and social workers to help with that dimension of of patient care. Um, What are your thoughts on uh, where we are currently at regarding um, holistically caring for patients from that end? These are difficult diseases for any patient to deal
1: with. And when you tell them, I have no cure, you're going to have this for the rest of your life. Our goal is to try and manage your disease so that it doesn't interfere with the rest of your life, um, that's a great goal, but there's still you know, people who, who experience really hard time with their disease. Some of the data that were presented in the session today pointed out that somewhere between 20 to 30% of patients suffer either from uh, symptoms of anxiety, about 20% with true anxiety disorders and 20% with depressive symptoms. If you think that that's a huge proportion of your patients, in fact, uh, I was seeing patients with one of our fellows uh, the other day, and they said to me, we have this standardized questions that we ask them about, do they feel blue or depressed? And they said, oh, my God, everybody answers yes to this. <laughs> it wasn't truly everybody, but it is this concept that, you know, 20%, 30% of the patients really have this is a major health need, and you know finding uh, that psychological support for them to come up with coping measures. some of them actually need to be on medications, but for many of them it's really finding the appropriate uh, counseling that gives them strategies for how to how to cope with the anxiety that and depression that that comes with their disease, and sometimes just getting them through that
0: that tough period and then they won 't need. Uh, further counseling down the road and considering that that response that you got uh which i'm sure many of our audience will will agree with that oh my god they all uh, feel this way of course they all feel like they, they need counseling is there a disparity in how often we as the healthcare professionals right on the front lines with these patients are asking um how they're doing from a psychosocial needs standpoint do you feel like that's that's being asked enough <laughs> I can only talk about my own practice. Like I, I don't have data on, on what
1: other people's practice patterns are. What I do think is almost certainly true, and this is just my gut instinct, is we don't do a very good job of providing them with the psychosocial support that they need. Um, and this relates to really having access to the right... Uh, the right people who can provide the right counseling to patients. And uh, there was some excellent discussion in the symposium today uh, with some resources provided. Uh, The Crohn's and Colitis Foundation's website provides some resources uh, that patients can use. And in addition, uh, it was discussed uh, some websites where patients can go to identify psychologists who have been vetted through the Rome uh, Foundation for uh, treating of patients who have gastrointestinal disorders uh, and so that 's a great resource for patients to reach out to as well as for physicians to find um, health uh, mental health specialists in their area who will specialize in
0: caring for patients with gastrointestinal diseases. excellent that sounds, and we 'll have to um, do our part, I think in being able to. Um, help disseminate some of those resources um, on your team's behalf through the programming that we're doing here. So thank you for mentioning that. Um, continuing on just with your uh, your own session, um, there were some other areas that, that became focus um, zones. One of them involved uh, dermatologic conditions in the treatment of IBD and some of the considerations that go into that. Anything or any takeaways that came out of the session uh, from that vantage point?
1: Yeah, I think the dermatology issue is is interesting. As gastroenterologists, we spend a lot of time doing endoscopy and and describing what we see. Yet, as soon as somebody shows up with a rash or a skin lesion, suddenly we have no ability to (laughs) recognize what it is, describe what it is, um, and much less know how to treat it, and and in all honesty... um, we should have. We should understand the basics of managing peristomal lesions. We're really probably not in the business of of treating diffuse skin diseases. Um, that being said, it's all the more reason to partner with gastroenterologists, rather with dermatologists. And I thought that uh, some of the discussion around four broad categories of dermatologic diseases was useful, there are those that are just a manifestation of of inflammatory bowel disease. And I think we should all be able to recognize those knife-like lesions that are are really dermatologic manifestations of Crohn's disease. Um, The sort of extraintestinal manifestations, things like enodosum. uh, And then there's, uh, for example, the complications of medical therapy, and um lastly, we should be cognizant of there's nothing that says you can't have things that are completely unrelated to your inflammatory bowel disease that show up as as skin lesions. And then the other the other aspect that I think is really important for people to remember is that skin cancer, particularly non melanoma skin cancer, is amazingly common, and uh, many of the medications that we're giving suppress the immune system, likely increase the risk of patients having non-melanoma skin cancer. And while most of these are basal cell carcinomas, and we think of this as an innocuous disease, sometimes in the setting of immunosuppression, you can have rapidly spreading uh, basal cell carcinomas that require uh, rather large surgeries. Um, and we're also increasing the risk of squamous cell carcinomas, which, which can be fatal at times. And so we really need to be vigilant about recommending that our patients who are getting immunosuppressant therapy, that they're seen by
0: dermatologists on a, on a regular basis. And you raise a really good point about, in, in general, because your session also touched on the idea of care coordination, um, when to, n- when to bring in a broader team, who to bring in, how often. Um, any thoughts uh, with respect to that? You touched upon that from the side of, of dermatology and, and knowing kind of when you're out of your depth, but also taking some onus, <laughs> taking some charge of, of the dermatologic manifestations of IBD, for instance. What are your thoughts on, on improving care coordination to make long-term outcomes better for patients? Well, the, the keynote speech was
1: given by Miguel Riguero, uh, and he gave a, a beautiful lecture on the future of medical homes for the care of patients with IBD. He he acknowledged this is not happening in most places around the country, but it may be part of, of the future. And um, he showed some incredible data that by bringing together this multidisciplinary team, having, you know, occasional meetings, you know, sort of your weekly huddle to discuss the the more difficult patients and know where you're going. When he was at University of Pittsburgh, they were able to significantly reduce uh, unplanned care, so ER visits, hospitalizations. This would have a, a huge impact, not just on, you know, the cost of care, but Keeping patients out of emergency rooms, keeping them out of the hospital, that's all part of improving their quality of life. And uh, I think for the, not all physicians are practicing in a setting where this makes sense. But even if you're not, sort of having your team of go to, this is my surgeon. This is my healthcare professional. This is my dermatologist. that sort of broad team that you refer to and i mean those were just three examples there's obviously many others uh, that would that would fit in there and you've you've created your sort of virtual network uh and you work together you know what to expect when you refer to them you know what's coming back um you can get
0: timely visits for your patients i think that's uh, really important it seems like perfect parting perfect parting comments for uh for our closing of the discussion, have your A-team. Identify them and sustain them. (laughs) Nurture those relationships in that network. I very much want to thank my guest, Dr. James Lewis, for sharing insights gleaned from the session that he helped oversee IBD Beyond the Gut at this year's Crohn's and Colitis Congress. Thanks so much, Dr. This was wonderful having you on the program. Great. It was really my pleasure. Thank you. This program was brought to you in collaboration with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, and the American Gastroenterological Association. If you missed any part of this discussion, or to find others in this series, visit ReachMD.com foundation, where you can be part of the knowledge.